Hebrews chapter 8 is where we're going to be, verses 7 through 13. Uh, recently, I started a new bedtime routine with our kids, and uh, it's one that we're, we're still kind of thinking through. I'm reading a book right now that talks about sort of bringing some spiritual disciplines into the lives with your kids, and so that's a whole battle, right? But one of the things that I'm working on right now is this new little bedtime routine, and I wanted to share it with you. Uh, I read it in this book, and I was like, you know, that's a good idea. I'm going to do that to close the night, because so often I just want to at the end of the day. Uh, But I don't, right? So uh, anyway, I I want want to try this new thing. And here's how it goes. Uh, Put your hand on their head or on their their shoulder or on their pillow or something like that, and you ask them questions. And they're easy responses, even for little ones like ours. And the first question is, can you see my eyes? And they say, yes. Can you see that I see your eyes? The answer is yes, although Eden's like this. (laughs) The next question is, do you know that I love you? Yes. Do you know that God loves you. Or no, I'm sorry, the first one is, do you know that I love you even when you do bad things? Do you know that I love you even when you do good things? Yes. And the next question is, who else loves you like that? And the answer is, God does. God does. And then the next and the last thing is, rest in that love. Good reminder. Good reminder. And so I was doing that. um, The first night was Friday. The second night was last night. And I came to Zion, who's our four-year-old, the one that was making all kinds of noise with that brown paper bag just a minute ago, gunning it out of here for Children's Church. I came to him, and I put my hand on his head, and I was like, okay, Zion. And then I asked him the first question. I said, can, I see, can you see my eyes? He goes, yes. I said, can you see that? I, yes. I said, do you know that? I, yes. And so he's not even listening, and so I'm just trying to get it out. Do you know that I love you? He's like, yes, yes really ready for bed, very tired, clearly. I said, do you know that I love you even when you do bad things? Yes. Do you know that I love you even when you do good things? He's just really quickly, yes, waiting for his prompt. Yes, yes, like a dog that's waiting to go outside. Yes, yes. And I say, who else loves you like that? God does. And so I say, rest in that love, and then I tell him good night, and he probably just rolls around in there for 30 minutes. But Zion is, is quick and goofy with his little yeses and his responses. It's funny because that little thing that I'm trying to instill in them even at a young age, and Brooke and I are trying to be intentional about ways to do that, it has already become sort of this cluelessly heard thing. Just He has no clue. He just knows he's supposed to say yes, and then eventually he says God does, and that's just kids, right? That's just him. It becomes a clueless thing that he hears. And perhaps one day he will contemplate it and realize how stunning of a reality is that God loves us even at our highest and at our lowest. And we can rest in how wonderful that news is. And yet right now, he just hears it and it's just gone, right? The reason I say that is because I think that we can hear so many times the phrase, you have a personal relationship with God that we don't really understand what a shocking statement that is. That can become so rudimentary and in one ear, out the other ear, that you don't understand how amazing it is that the holy God who knows no sin accepts you. Not at your highest, but even at your lowest. That may not stun you this morning, but it ought to. It ought to. That's amazing. It's an amazing reality. The new that we're going to see in the New Testament is not a distant external relationship with God, but a personal and internal one. That the Holy Spirit is not just in a temple or in a tabernacle, which we've seen throughout the book of Hebrews, looking at the Old Testament, but the Holy Spirit is in every saved and redeemed believer. Praise God. In us. 
You know, Old Testament prophecy is what we're going to see this morning in, in Hebrews chapter 8. And the passage that's going to be referred to is Jeremiah 31. And it's not exactly a page turner to Jeremiah, is it? And the reason why I think sometimes we get a little bogged down in that genre of prophecy is that it's, a, it's one that we avoid due to not feeling confident in our ability to understand it. But I'm going to give you a real quick guide as to, way to how to read that genre. Here it is. To live today in light of what is to come. That's why the author wrote those things. Here's what's coming. Here's how you're to live today in light of those things. But so often, as it is with prophecy, he was foretelling that God was going to bring a redeeming work. And Jeremiah certainly was. And so while the author of Hebrews understands this will happen, this will happen, this will happen, for his audience and for us, it is not something that will happen. It is something that has happened. Praise God. So today, as we look at Hebrews 8, we're really looking at Jeremiah 31 something that will happen for the Old Testament people of God. But for us as believers, it's something that has happened. And so instead of live today in light of what is to come, it's live today now in light of what has come. You're going to see in this passage a lot of these I will, I will, I will statements. For us, it is I have. All right? So let's look at it. Jeremiah, or really Hebrews chapter 8, 7 through 13. It says this. Hebrews 8, 7 through 13. This is 4. If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one to his neighbor and each one to his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I am merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old, is ready to vanish away. If you saw the title of the message today, it's Out With The Old. And if you came in here and were starting to sweat thinking, now hold on a second. That's, you're not old, man. You're just a little bit not as young, that's all. Okay? And that's not something to make you sweat. That has nothing to do with age. What we're looking at in our passage this morning is old covenant and new covenant. And maybe a word synonymous with covenant would be an old agreement and a new agreement, an old way and a new way. And so when we're looking at out with the old, that's really the message of the author of Hebrews this morning. He's telling Christians, do away with the old covenant. There's something new that has arrived. Last week, we looked at the passage right before this one in Hebrews um, chapter 8, really ending with verse 6, which talked about this new covenant being better and talking about better promises of this better covenant. And again, that's mentioned in verse 6. And so there's a reference then to an Old Testament prophet named Jeremiah. Now listen, that may be something that you're not very familiar with. We got to remember these people were extremely familiar with him. They knew exactly who the author of Hebrews was referring to because they themselves were Jewish Christians steeped in the Old Testament, but now been shown a new and living way in the New Testament and the new work of God in their hearts. And so this book, Hebrews, written to Jewish Christians, you got to understand that element matters. And so I'm going to put something on the screen now that has sort of some Old Testament themes and also a little thing to remember underneath it. Go ahead and throw that up there. 
Hopefully you can see that okay. But these are some of the Old Testament themes that we see all throughout the Old Testament, but also that we've already seen in the book of Hebrews. And he's touched on all of these things, but really we want to understand that little part at the bottom there is that those Old Testament themes were hopeful foreshadows in their own way, but ultimately they were simply mere reminders that though God loved them and desired nearness to them, because they were sinful, he was distant from them, all right? God promised that he wanted to be near them. I mean, go back to the Garden of Eden. He wanted nearness. Sin simply fractured that. Church, we have a sin problem, just like they did so many years ago. But each of those themes kind of has its place in the gospel and also in the book of Hebrews. That Abraham, we saw, was not the blessing himself, but he was the gateway to the blessing. That Jesus would come through his lineage and bless all the nations of the earth. And we know that story. Then you have Moses and the exodus from Egypt. And what that means is that God brought a messenger, but even greater than the messenger, he brought a message. And the message was a message of salvation from a physical enemy. But you know what's greater than that? It's salvation of a different sort of enemy. Then you see the promised land. Again, we've already talked about here this land of rest that's wonderful and imperfect, but it's a, it's a dwelling place of imperfection in the Old Testament. They're brought through the wilderness to an imperfect dwelling place. Wars still remained. Injustice still remained. Wickedness still remained in the land of Canaan. And then you have the tabernacle, or another word for temple or tent, and then also the temple, which represented God among them. But ultimately, there was a barrier even in those places between God and them. Simply a shadow, a mere reminder of fallenness. Then they had the sacrificial system and the priesthood, the sacrifices to appease God's wrath, but only temporarily, a band-aid instead of the surgery that their hearts needed. The priesthood being mediators, but those priests died and only entered through a barrier themselves. Another reminder that though God loves them, God is ultimately distant from them. The agreement, the covenant of the old was one that was ineffective. And I've mentioned this verse several weeks now. But Hebrews 7, verses 18 and 19 are really good thematic verses to summarize all that I just said. And that is, for on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside. That's a former covenant. is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. It means it's ineffective. It can't do. It's just for the law has made nothing perfect. All those Old Testament themes were hopeful foreshadows, but ultimately mere reminders that though God loved them, desired nearness to them, he was ultimately distant from them, even if he was among them. But the last part of that verse I just read says this, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. That's a game changer. Through which we draw near to God. A better hope. That Jesus has brought a better, a new agreement, a new covenant. And what the author is saying is, I've used this word now two weeks in a row, that they need to pivot away from this old way that is hopeless and useless and is ineffective and move to looking toward Jesus. That Jesus is greater than all of those themes. Put those themes back up there for a moment. He is Abraham's blessing. He brings the greater salvation and message than Moses and Egypt because his salvation is not from a physical army. It's from the enemy of sin the permanent salvation. He is the greater land of promise because he brings us not just to temporary rest, but to eternal rest. He brings the greater meeting or dwelling because he is Emmanuel, God with us. The greater lasting sacrifice because he said it is finished, not appeased for a while, but completed completely. He is the greater mediator because we have one mediator between God and man, and it's Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's greater. And the author of Hebrews wants them to understand that he is simply greater. And they need to pivot from the old to the new. Out with the old, in with the new. You see, God created people to be near him. 
And even when that relationship was fractured in Eden, he committed himself to people and desired people's commitment to him. That in Christ, he delivered on that commitment and made a way when there simply was no way. And the words that encapsulated that were these, new covenant. A new agreement of hope that showed them that God loved them and desired nearness to them and he had accomplished it out with the old and with the new. Now here's the thing, easy for us to say, we, did, we haven't spent our entire lives and our ancestors thousands of years with this old covenant. For them, this is a tough pill to swallow. This is a tough pill to swallow. In fact, there's a certain wisdom to questioning someone who came preaching such a new and revolutionary message. Hear me say this. If someone comes and preaches you something new, you should raise your eyebrows at that and say, mm, let me think about that. Are you sure about that? Because that's exactly what's happening, is that Jesus brings a new message from one that has been long in antiquity. They should consider that with wisdom and say, really? It's hard to let go of these things, even if it is the way, the truth, and the life. I mean, if some scientist were to appear on the news tomorrow and say, what if I told you that there's an even healthier drink than water? What would you say? Uh, okay, crazy. That's what you'd say. Because it's been one way for so long. You're thinking, I'm going to have to check this one, man. I don't know about that. And you're wise to do that. And they were thinking the same thing. It's hard to get away from the old and move into this new. So it makes sense that the way that the author supports his new claim is to say something very interesting, and that's that it's actually not so new. He uses this passage in Jeremiah to talk about this, to say that I'm not inventing the notion of a new covenant, that Jeremiah, the prophet that we look to, he foretold it. He knew it was coming. Look at verses 7 through 9 when it says this. It says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, perfect, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. That's just a simple mathematics, right? God wouldn't have given us another one if the first person was good enough, he's saying. Keep going. For he finds fault with them when he says, behold, the days are coming. And this is Jeremiah. He's saying it's not a new thing. Jeremiah said it first. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant, new agreement with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant they made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Now listen. Just for the sake of time, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here, and a lot more can be said here, but the key verse is verse 7. So I'm going to look at it one more time. If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. He says that there was fault with that covenant, which we've already talked about. It was hopeless. It was insufficient. It was ineffective. He then says in verse 8 that he, finds fault, he found fault with the people. Here's what that means. People had a sin problem, and therefore a covenant with blessings contingent on people being sinless— it's not a good one. It's not a good one. It's not a hopeful one. The covenant was flawed because the people were flawed. And so Jeremiah steps on the scene way back in the day and says, a new covenant is coming because it must come. And now the author of Hebrews is saying, see, it had to, he's saying. It's better because the promises of this new covenant are better promises. And they're better promises kept too. That's what he says. Look back in verse 6 real quick. We looked at this last week, but he says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant that he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. We talked about these better promises last week. Promises are future tense, right? It's like these things that are coming. And in the Old Testament, they were things that were coming. They were promises. And certainly God's promises are still present for us today. But for us as New Testament believers, I think a better word for this is not promises, but realities. 
And so today, if you're taking notes, I've got three things that are not better promises, but really more appropriately said are better realities for us that are in Christ Jesus. And the first one is this, that God has left his mark on our hearts. That God has left his mark on our hearts. God has left his mark on our hearts. In the old covenant, this old agreement, the law was written, was a written rule book. It was external to them. And think about it. They had commandments written on stone, right? Moses brought them these commandments, and then they had it on pieces of, of paper for them. It was a scroll, and they had these laws that were, that were etched in stone. They were, they were external. What, what I mean to say that is that their old covenant was a law that was written in a rule book that was external to them. It was on stone. And so knowing the commands did not give them any, please hear this, knowing the commands, okay, on paper, it did not give them any supernatural inclination to keep them. There's a difference between us and them, in other words. You have a supernatural inclination to keep God's word if you're in Jesus. His name is the Holy Spirit. They did not have him. They did not have a supernatural inclination, a divine inner working to keep those commandments. And so Jeremiah wrote to stubborn, professing believers. Stubborn, okay? They professed to be God-fearers, but they were stubborn. In fact, you want to tell me how many converts Jeremiah had in his lifelong ministry as a prophet? Two. Two. That's a stubborn group of people. That's his mission. They were stubborn. They were immovable. He complained that God's people had, in his words, he called them uncircumcised hearts, which means that there was something on their hearts that needed to be trimmed away. Something needed to change in here if they were going to go and honor God out there. And I know that may be weird imagery to use, but he's simply saying God has to do something to take away what's on the other. You need to change what's in here if you're going to go and honor him out there. Jeremiah 4, 4. I won't read the whole verse, but it says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your heart, saying there's something impure on you. You need to take it out. In Deuteronomy 10, 16, right after putting the law on those stone tablets, Moses encountered God's people and he said, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. He'd broken tablets, and then he says, here's some tablets. Honor God and take off the part of your heart that is stubborn and just remove it and do better. <laughs> Change your heart so it isn't stubbornly disobedient anymore. And you just think, oh, that's all? Just change? Okay. Try telling your child to just change their heart. That won't get you very far. You just wanted to, will you just change? <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. That's not how it works, right? But that's sometimes what Jeremiah said to them, and Moses said to them is just, Change your heart. But the reality is, in the old covenant, there was no supernatural thing, movement, person of God in here that was changing from the inside out God's people. But oh man, in the new covenant, God does circumcise the heart. He's removing something. He's changing us from the inside out. In fact, this was also foretold. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your offspring, so that, listen to this, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. In other words, why does God supernaturally trim away hard-hearted stubbornness and sinful tendencies? That we may love him with all of us all of who we are. That's why God does an amazing work in our hearts. That we would get all of us to him. It's a promise turned reality that the fundamental flaw in God's Old Testament people has been remedied for those that are in Christ. That we can now delight to do the will of God because of God's transforming work in here. 
So where Old Testament or Old Covenant obedience was a hopeless work of man, now New Covenant obedience is a divine work of God. And this is what verse 10 means. Look at it real quick. Verse 10 says this, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. Notice it's future tense, but for us it's it's, it's happened, right? For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now here's what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you're going to, when you become a Christian, you'll just magically know the entire Bible doesn't mean that. You're thinking, well, good, because then I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't be in a good shape, right? That's not what it means. It means that obedience is no longer an external striving of man looking to stone. Now it's an internal work of God where his life-changing handwriting is on our hearts. Thank God for that. What a better message. The old covenant people, members, were held back by this internal stubbornness. They were pressing their foot on the gas while the car's emergency brakes were on. They couldn't go anywhere with their vain strivings. There had to be something that changed on the inside. They were striving for a change on the outside. When God had to first do a work on the inside, you have that change if you're in Christ Jesus. Another prophecy that foretold this is Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. It says, and I will, again, has happened for us, and I will give you a new heart And a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, give you a heart of flesh. And check this last part out. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Here's what that means. You cannot do the Christian life without a powerful, ongoing work of God. It cannot be done without a powerful, ongoing, internal work of God. And I simply am here to say there is no better way to throw lighter fluid on that flame than to be on your knees in prayer. Do you want to be near to a work of God in your heart? Allow him to work in your heart. Don't just think that that's a passive thing that happens. You need to engage him. Express your affection for him. We are fools to enter a battlefield without a weapon, and you are a fool to enter into your discipleship out there on the battlefield without a prayerful heart. You're just a fool. And I'm as guilty as you are of it. But we are fools to think that we can go out and honor him apart from a work that happens in here. They were stubborn and stupid, and we are stubborn and stupid if we think anything different is going to happen to us. We must be prayerful. We must be near the Lord. The argument that he's making is that the Holy Spirit is not on stone, but the Holy Spirit is in our hearts. We don't have to look out there for him. We look inward for him. We should listen to his guidance. Seek his counseling. You want to walk with God? Make an effort to do so. Amazing reality. What an amazing reality that God writes his law in our hearts. The second thing, not just a promise, but a reality for us who are in Christ, that God has made himself known to all. That God has made himself known to all. I emphasize the word known there because I think that's the emphasis of the passage, but you could also simply emphasize the word all. What a a powerful word that is in that context. God has made himself known to all, and we're going to see this in a moment. You know, every member of the New Covenant community, all people who give their lives to Christ, will know God personally. That's that phrase I mentioned earlier that we kind of let go in one ear out the other and not let it sit how incredible it is that we can personally know God 
every single Christian person, whether they are four or six or 12 or 25 or 88, you can have a personal, intimate relationship with God. How can this be? Verse 11 says, And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. That's an interesting statement right there. There will come a day for us, New Testament church, when you're not going to have to teach each one person, Know the Lord. He says, For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. You see, the reason he says that, you're not going to have to teach it, is because Israel under the old covenant was composed of both believers and unbelievers in their covenant community. They were a mixed bag. In other words, members of the covenant community had to be exhorted to know the Lord. Simply being born in Israel did not guarantee that you were going to walk with God, right? Simply being born into a church environment does not ensure that you're going to walk with God. This is what he's saying, is that they needed to be exhorted to know the Lord. And that's what Jeremiah was doing and pretty much every other Old Testament author was doing, is exhorting them to know God. Being in Israel did not ensure that they would live as God's people and know God. They needed to have a personal relationship with him. But now... One cannot, please hear this. I'm not talking about being in this room and gathering at the church. One cannot be a true member of the church, a true member of the church, part of God's people, and not be a God-fearer and a God-knower. You cannot be a Christian and not know God. You cannot. And these days, in Christ, you cannot know God without being in Christ Jesus. In other words, while Israel might have been a mixed bag, you had people that were God-fearers and some that weren't, and so the authors were coming exhorting, know God. Hey, you need to know God. You need to go to his word. You need to pray. Know him, know him, know him, because it wasn't a given. Listen, the church, though, is not a mixed bag, but is a God-knowing family. We are a mixed bag in many ways. Some are older than others. Some speak differently than others. Some dress differently than others. Some come from up north. Some come from down south. There are Christians on the other side of the world. It's a mixed bag, is it not? And yet, it's not a mixed bag. It's not a mixed bag. Because there's one thing that unites all of us, and that is that we know God personally as Lord and Savior from the least to the greatest. The great equalizer is, do you know God? And listen, that doesn't deny that some claim to be believers, some claim to be part of the church, but do not truly know Christ. It simply means that all that truly are in Christ do know God. I'm going to say something that may make you a little uncomfortable. Your name being on a church membership roll means nothing. It means nothing if you do not ultimately know God. No one can punch their ticket to heaven because they've joined a church family by letter, by statement, whatever. That is not what does it. There are people on our church membership role that are not Christians. And that is true of every Southern Baptist church in our county and every Southern Baptist church probably in our entire state. That there are people on a church membership role that do not know God. Your name being on a list, your name being on a Sunday school role, it means nothing in the kingdom of God if you do not know God. And there are so many that believe they will be escorted into glory because their name is on a piece of paper, is in a power church application at Fellowship Baptist Church, and they're wrong. It's a warning, church. It's a warning that while church membership is a beautiful thing, a covenant community, right, to stir up one another to love and good works, 
We should seek to be tethered to one another as a family. I'm simply saying as a warning, that is not what makes you a Christian. Have you been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb? That's what makes you a Christian. And everyone in the whole world that has knows God personally, from the least of them to the greatest of them. What an amazing reality that God has made himself known, and he hasn't just made himself known, knowable. He's made himself known to all. Three. God has forgiven our sins fully and finally. Better promise turned reality that God has forgiven our sins fully and finally. You know, you may not be amazed that someone like you and me can know God, but that doesn't make it any less amazing. Sinners cannot know God. I want to say that again. It may sound a little alarming. Sinners cannot know God. We can't. So something has to change about our identity if we're going to enter glory. Sinners can't. You know how I know that? Because back in the Garden of Eden, they had to leave the garden because they became sinners. Sinners and people can't be like this. Sinners and God can't be like this. There is a, a bridge or a, a divide that needs to be bridged between them. Sinners cannot know God. And yet, what has been said right here in this passage is, yet they shall all know me. How can God make such a claim? It's because of what happens in the very next verse. Look at verse 12. For I will be merciful. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. And I will remember their sins no more. That for explains the basis upon which God's people can truly know God. They are forgiven of sin and brought near. He says, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. How can I know them? Because I'm going to do something. You see, we have a problem. Sin is the ultimate God deterrent, and God's holiness is the ultimate sin deterrent. That's a problem, right? The sin is the ultimate God's holiness deterrent, and God's holiness is the ultimate sin deterrent. The problem of holiness versus sin are irreconcilable, especially for a God of justice. And so when it talks about Mercy, in verse 12, probably merciful toward their iniquities. Mercy is corrupt from the standpoint of justice. Do you understand what I'm saying? Mercy is corrupt from the standpoint of justice, and we have a just God. If there was a judge in our world who was merciful, you would be outraged. You'd be outraged. If someone murdered their family, stood before a judge and said, I'm really sorry, I'll never do it again. I apologize. What can I do to make it right? I get on my knees. I'll beg. And the judge said, that's fine. I'll be merciful. You're free to go. What would you say? You would be outraged by that. Because from a standpoint of justice, mercy is scandalous. Mercy is an outrage. It is outrageous. A good judge must indiscriminately administer justice. And when Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, that means sinners got to die. That means sinners got to spend eternity apart from a holy God, not with him. You and I have a problem. That is a big problem. Now hear this part. How can then this verse say that God will be merciful, a just God, merciful towards sinners? I'll remember their sins no more. What kind of judge is that? Here's how. God did not dismiss sin's wages he satisfied them. God did not dismiss 
the wages of sin being death. He satisfied the wages of sin because he sent his only son, Jesus, to die, to perish. That those that believe in him would not perish, die, but would have eternal life. How can God offer mercy to sinners? Because he satisfied his wrath, didn't just push it to the side. It says, I'll remember their sins no more. That phrase is crazy to me, man. Remember their sins no more? What kind of statement is that from a just judge? But hear this. Remembering sin no more is not a matter of ignoring, but a matter of resolving. It's not a matter of ignoring. It's a matter of resolving. That's why 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's why Acts 3.19 says, Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That's why Psalm 103 verse 12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Man, what kind of covenant could be better than that? There's not one. And that's the author's point. Why are you clinging to this old thing that can't do what Jesus can do for you? Going back to what we talked about last week, what on earth can do for you what Jesus offers for you, what he can do for you? Nothing. So stop looking over there. Look to Christ. He is infinitely greater. That's why he says in verse 13, and speaking of a new covenant, he's cutting away now from Jeremiah and bringing his own commentary. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. It's his way of saying the obsolete comes because the greater has arrived. When was the last time you saw a movie gallery? Blockbuster, anybody? You might testify to Blockbuster. Yeah, man. You guys still remember the sound of a dot matrix printer? It sounded like that. And don't say like, can you hear that again? No, you can't. You guys remember those sounds, right? Or the sound of dial-up AOL internet? Why are those things obsolete? Because the better has arrived, Right? That's why. Things become obsolete because something better comes. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. The author's message is, let the old covenant disappear. Let it become dead. Let it vanish because something far greater has finally arrived. And the old agreement, the old covenant, you had a reminder of sins without the removal. In the old covenant, you had a reminder of the burden of sin without a lifter of that sin. In the old covenant, you had a reminder of hopelessness without a living hope. The message of hopelessness is dead. For us, your sin should be a reminder of four things. Not a reminder of sins without removal, not a reminder of burden without a lifter, not a reminder of hopelessness without a living hope. Your sin should be a reminder of four things. Number one, guilt is forever removed. Forever. Finally. When I say finally, I don't mean finally. I mean finally. It is gone. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. That's a reality for us because of the new covenant. Guilt is destroyed, forever removed. Sin is not just a reminder. It is a reminder that it is gone. The second thing is that salvation is fully and finally guaranteed. They use those words fully and finally because final means it's for good. It's final. It is period. But also fully, which means there is no part of you. There's no nook or cranny that the power of the cross did not satisfy. 
Oh, but what about this thing? There was this, this real deep reach, the deep reaches of, of who I am. That's real gnarly. I mean, that's really bad. That's the bad stuff that I did. Can God reach that? You better believe he can. I sure hope he can. If there is any possible way for you to lose your salvation, you'd have lost it the day you got Christ. You'd have lost it the moment you believed. If there was any way to lose it, I promise you, you would have. But I believe when Jesus said it is finished, he meant that junk. I believe when he said no one can snatch them from my hand, I think that he meant that. Praise God. It's a reminder that your guilt is forever removed. It's a reminder that salvation is full and final. It's guaranteed. It's a reminder that he is yours. You know him. Can we just let that wash over us for a moment? That you know God personally, intimately, something that Old Testament saints could not say, you can say, from the least to the greatest. And this room is full of the least. If you're like me. And then finally, if he is yours, that you know him, sin should be a reminder that you need to live like you are his. His law is written on your hearts, on our hearts. The big thing is that the Spirit's work is not a matter of behavior modification, but of heart transformation. The Spirit's work in your heart is not a matter of behavior modification. It is a matter of heart transformation. You know, I hear oftentimes, I hear a lot of baggage. I hear a lot of past, a lot of trauma, a lot of history, a lot of regret. And one of the common things for people that are newly giving their lives to Jesus is that they're putting to bed the idea of external behavior modification and are realizing, I've been trying to clean up my life for a long time. And I realize now that there is only one who can clean up this dirty life, and his name is Jesus. You are here today for a reason. God does not waste appointments. And if you're here today and you hear that message of external striving, of trying, of behavior modification that is just endlessly vain, and if you can connect with that and say, that's me, I'm going to give you a very simple instruction. There is nothing you can do to make yourself right before God but that's good news because Jesus has already done it. Today, your responsibility is to cling to him, to confess that you can never gain him, and to believe in the only one that came to you when you could not go to God, who has made a way when there was no way. Today can be the day of salvation for you. I don't care how long you've been at church. I don't care if your name is on a roll. I don't care if you've been going to Sunday school. If that's the fruit of your life in Jesus, then praise God for that. But I'm here to tell you, none of those things make you right before God. Do you know God? Has he changed your heart from the inside out? Ask him today to enter your heart and do a saving work fully, 
in every way. And praise God, finally, in every way.